0: Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk with Matt Steller, founder and CEO of Stellar. Welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, editor-in-chief of JCK, JCKOnline.com, and I'm with
1: Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCKOnline.com.
0: So today we've got another special guest. This is somebody who hardly needs an introduction. He's dialing in from Lafayette, Louisiana. I bet you can guess it's Matt Steller, founder, CEO of Steller. Also, I've been told, chief custodian. Many of you will know his voice and know his face, and certainly know the company he has built over the last 50 years, founded in 1970. I've spent many, many, many good times down in Lafayette with the Stellar crew. I have a lot of respect for the team, and we're thrilled to have you, Matt. Welcome.
2: Well, thank you. Excited to be with you guys today.
0: So, well, first of all, I think the story of how you founded Stellar is one of those industry legends at this point. There's definitely a back of the trunk, a car involved, um, but I don't want to steal your thunder. We'd love to hear it again. Many people know it, but I think a lot of people still don't. So how did you get started back in 1970?
2: Fact of the matter was uh, I was very blessed and fortunate to have gone to work for a local retail jeweler in my sophomore year in high school. You know, one of the blessings that I have is I'm very mechanically minded. I work well with my hands. And of course, as I went in for just custodian work, I actually found a, a great mentor who was the goldsmith, and he taught me how to start polishing rings and then going to sizing and setting stones. And I really, really enjoyed that because I was good at it. He and I, my senior year in high school, which was 1969, actually opened a trade shop locally in Lafayette, my hometown, and uh, we did repair work for all of the jewelers in our area. And I really became frustrated and disappointed because when somebody would give me a job to do, I was anxious to get it done and get it back to them. And often, you know, I needed findings, components, parts. So I had decided that uh, when I was getting out of high school, I did not want to go to college. I was burned out on school. And I thought it would really be cool to open up a distributorship of buying component trees and going on the road, if you will, trunk of my car and start delivering parts to jewelers within our area. And that's when I really fell in love with the jewelry industry. So in 1970, I actually incorporated the business. Uh, At that time, it was called South Central Distributors. I had no better name for it. (laughs) And started working the road, traveling Louisiana, Mississippi, Southern Arkansas, Eastern parts of Texas, got into Alabama. And then, of course, you know, as you start seeing these jewelers over and over, they came to trust me well, and I would literally go into the back of the store, open their tackle boxes full of components. I would fill what they were short on. Well, that was so successful that then they started calling me, wanting me to ship things to them. So all of a sudden, my role changed from being a traveling salesperson selling out of a trunk on my car to working in an office and shipping packages and taking orders. And I quickly realized that this business model was going to struggle in time because I I wanted to give the great service, but I was still dependent on the jewelry manufacturers. Now, my dad was a dentist. I I was in his office building. He gave me a small room. And I realized that, you know, I need to manufacture. I need to be kind of control of my delivery, my destiny. So we started manufacturing. And that was back in probably 1972. You know, now we've hired thousands. And it's been just a great run. I guess the disappointing thing is it's been 50 years already because I feel like I'm just getting started.
1: When I started, I remember it was Stuller Settings. Yes. When did it just become Stuller? When did you say, okay, let's branch out from just being settings?
2: I think it was probably in about 82, 83 when we moved out of my uh, father's dental building and we actually built our first manufacturing facility. I realized very quickly that Stellar settings really limited us by our name of selling settings. So we decided that it would probably be better and also help to personalize the business of just bringing it down simply to Stellar.
1: And one of the things you're known for is that you develop this whole infrastructure for overnight delivery A lot of the stuff that you pioneered is relatively
2: common now, but at the time it was technologically advanced. Would you agree with that? I'm not sure if you would call that technologically advanced because, you know, early on, uh, even into the early 80s, you know, we were still very, very manual. But I was trying to sell the message early on of what I had experienced working for the local retailer is that you didn't have to inventory all of these parts. I mean, you would open case after case with trays of solitaire mountings and every color and every stone size because it would take too long to try to get something. The supply chain was extraordinarily slow. But the concept was that just in time inventory just wasn't in the vocabulary of not only the jewelry industry, but I think across the country. It was, however, in Japan. They had learned very quickly that everything had to come in just in time to minimize delays in getting their product out. So I wanted to do the same thing here. So in 1982, 83, you know, Fred Smith was coming along with Federal Express. And I had the wonderful opportunity that I got to meet him and he wanted to promote the just-in-time inventory campaign and he felt we were really good to be able to do that within the jewelry industry. So I committed to him that we would ship in a big, large Federal Express box. It would go out, they would deliver it the next day, and we would only charge the jeweler the cost of what first-class insured return receipt mail would cost them and that really gave us the universe of america that we could ship product and get it to a customer overnight anywhere in america and that just kind of fit our business model that you can order it you can get it right away and you can depend on us because we are reliable
1: and and you set up this whole network i guess of phone banks early on also correct
2: Well, you know, it was interesting. I guess it was the mid 80s when fax machines started coming out. So either you sold it by calling on them in a store, which at that point I had sales reps out on the road. You know, at that point in the late 70s, I had to start making catalogs and almost all of the componentry catalogs were always pretty ugly. I'll never forget one of my competitors in New York. He just had a slew of different offerings on findings and settings, and he had a little note on the bottom of every page. And it said, we have everything in stock with the exception of what you want. Yeah. And that was kind of just the attitude of the industry. They didn't stock anything. They wouldn't deliver it quickly. And that's where our claim to fame was, was always about service. So, you know, everything we've ever done was the concept that if we make the jewelers money, if we can get to save them from carrying excessive inventories, then we'll be successful behind them.
0: If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show.
1: One thing I always thought was interesting is that you never had, at least for the phones, you didn't necessarily have dedicated salespeople that it would just kind of be first come first serve. Whoever picked up the phone would get the order.
2: We were so elementary in those days, Rob. Everybody was answering the phone, including me. We had all the product sitting on shelves above the phone banks and we'd be running around with a headset and we'd be pulling a tray to be sure we had it to tell the customer it was going today. You know, we started out very crude. It's come a long way since the good old days.
0: You know, I, I've been there, and in fact, I just watched a video on your site that reminded me of how big it is. Is it 600,000 square feet? Is that the size of the facility?
2: Well, you know, we I say we try to keep that a secret because, you know, we don't want to sound like we're big, or we certainly don't want people to think that we've outgrown them. So the size of the facility really doesn't matter. It's really about the service that you offer. It's the personalization that we want to give. We want to have fun in the business when we want them to feel that when they're placing an order and we want to be there for them.
0: So you, you have this incredible perspective over 50 years. What has really remained the same in all those years about that particular style of doing business? And, and what, what would you say is the greatest change?
2: That's a question we could probably talk about for hours. You know, everything has changed, but yet the core has not. We're in an industry about celebrating life's events. People celebrate giving jewelry or wearing jewelry for very special times. And that hasn't changed in my 50 years, probably hasn't changed, you know, hundreds of years before that. And I don't think that that will change in the long-term future. In saying that, everything else has It's just different. The way you market, the way you advertise, the way you display, the less product that you can afford to carry. I mean, after all, you know, jewelers have a set amount of dollars to put in inventory and your inventory triples and quadruples and 10 times multiples of what the original price was. Every one of those multiples reduces the availability of selection. So jewelers today need reliable suppliers. They need inventory quickly. Uh, They certainly want to present products they want to be able to deliver product out of the case, it's the most important part for them, but they've got to be able to depend on a very strong supply chain. You know, same thing with personalization. Oh my goodness. When I got into the business, there was no personalization with maybe the exception of engraving inside of a wedding band. But today, huge difference in the way the businesses are run today. Also, you know, in years past, most jewelers carried everything, China and silver. And, you know, I can remember when Zales was selling TVs, you know, and electronics. (laughs) Wow. So, you know, if you had a store location, let's fill it up with anything what you would describe as luxury, maybe not necessarily jewelry luxury, but anything else you would consider to be a privilege to buy. And
1: you've mostly or entirely kept the manufacturing in Lafayette, correct?
2: We try to keep as much manufacturing as we possibly can here. You know, certainly if you're saying, oh, well, you know, you can make it yourself. You can make it for less cost. I'm not quite sure that that would be a fair statement. We do as much manufacturing as we can here because we have control over it. We do have manufacturing elsewhere but you can't do that quick service that way. You can't do the turnaround, you can't do the impossibles, you can't do the Cinderella stories if you have to depend on an overseas or a manufacturing elsewhere. The thing about the jewelry business that always puzzles me, you know, everybody in the world is gonna have to pay the same price for gold and platinum and alloys, the elements that are in it, it's all the same price. Same thing with diamonds. Diamonds are basically paid in US dollars. So the only thing that changes from the commodity cost of all of this really is your labor charge and your markup.
0: I wanna back up a little bit. And when we talked about your perspective on how this business has changed and certainly this year we've seen a great deal of change and a great deal of acceleration of trends that were already in place. What do you think, just surveying your customers, who have been the most successful? What are they doing right, especially this year?
2: Well, you know, the cool thing about survival, you know, when governments call for stay-at-home orders and you got to close your shop. In the jewelry industry, business continued to go on. You know, the independent jewelers may be at home, but they're calling their customers. Certainly the essential businesses, you know, the big box stores and things of that nature that sell jewelry still did very well but the industry did super. And everyone I spoke to in the jewelry industry, whether they're a retailer a distributor or a manufacturer, all have had really great months. So yeah, uh, COVID is a problem, it's a big problem today, but the jewelers will get their share. Is it easy? No. Do you have to change your model? Do you have to do something different than what was working for you months ago? Absolutely. But we have that flexibility. We have that desire, you know, to please and to satisfy and to go out there and make it happen. Now, we have some that don't want to do that. They don't want to change. They just want to gripe about the diamond prices or, you know, fuss about what's this lab-grown thing and it's taking away from my diamond business. The world is changing quickly. And so we have to live with faster change. And if you're rigid, you will suffer for that.
1: Sobering. And you were only closed for two weeks?
2: Yeah, more like eight working days. I made a plea to the governor, uh, as well as the attorney general, as well as our mayor in Lafayette. I explained to them, you know, that we supported all of these thousands of small businesses where they depended on us. They're still doing business. They still need us for them to survive. So we came back to work in a very much smaller crew. And then we grew back our uh, labor force over the next couple of months.
0: And how's 2020 shaping up then in total in comparison to 2019?
2: Well, we're going to beat the year 2019. And we had a wonderful year in 2019. But I can tell you, this by far has been the toughest year in running Stellar. There were so many anomalies. There were so many difficulties. I mean, even today, we have many associates that are out because their son or daughter or wife or spouse was around somebody who just found out they had uh, COVID. The supply chain worldwide is badly damaged. You know, so many people stayed at home. Things didn't get made, warehouses getting empty. There's a big change today of going out to shop versus, you know, shopping on the internet. So all these changes are happening. Then, you know, we get hit with uh, a ransom of our software that got encrypted literally the Saturday after Thanksgiving. And we were frozen and our uh, IT, as well as all of the folks that came to our rescue said, well, listen, just to rebuild your software in a green environment. Now you're looking at at least 16 days, maybe three weeks, and then you got to start loading data and then you got to get equipment running again because everything doesn't work after you don't run it for a bit. And I am so proud to say we were back up and shipping orders within four days of the cyber attack.
0: Wow. Do you have any idea why Stellar was targeted or, or anything more about who the perpetrators were?
2: Well, we know the organization who has done it. I would love to know why we were targeted, but I think I would say that there are so many businesses, small and large that are being attacked, they're bank robbers without a mask and behind the keyboard instead of a gun. And the encryption is easy to do, and it's almost impossible to undo without them giving you what I would describe the golden key to release your data. It was a fact that we lost data, we just couldn't operate things because it was encrypted. And the things that weren't predominantly our cloud services, we were scared to run them. So we did not damage the things that were working. So this was a, around the clock. It was something that I have never experienced. And you know, I sit back on it today, two weeks later, and it's like, I just can't believe we pulled this thing out.
1: So you you didn't pay ransom at all. You had to recreate the whole thing, I guess.
2: I won't say we had to recreate the whole thing, but we really had to recreate a green field of new equipment. We had to be sure that the software that was good, we could load. We were worried about some software and even some data that may be encrypted where if we could get to it, was it good or was it evil? So, you know, we've pulled together all of the data from all of our different areas. We're rebuilding it as we speak. But I think the important message is that we're up and we're delivering and we're blessed to be doing so because we could have been out all month.
0: Oh, dear. What a way to top off this
2: (laughs) crazy year. One thing, it seems that Stuller
1: has pretty much kept the same business model through most of its existence in that it caters wholesale to independent retailers, you stay mostly with the independents rather than big accounts. Is that is that something you've ever considered changing or would consider changing?
2: Well, some of it is correct, but uh, the business model is exactly the same as it was in 1970 when we established Stellar. The business model was pretty simple, make the customer happy, be grateful for the business, be humble. I never wanted our jeweler to ever fear that Stellar was a competitor to them. Our belief is let the jeweler themselves deal with selling it to the consumer and let us take care of them. Okay.
0: You know, what, what would you tell your younger self, your, what was it, probably 19-year-old self right around there, 1970, if you could? What would you go back and tell him?
2: Oh, my goodness. I'm a big believer that you have to make mistakes. And oh, my God, I made tons of mistakes. And when I go back and say, man, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have you know, made this choice. Absolutely. But it's ridiculous to even think that.
1: And my understanding is you've kind of stepped away from the business at certain times, and then you've stepped back. What was kind of the thought process in doing that?
2: I've been a very, very hands-on type of leader. I love getting into the depth of things. I love figuring out the problems. I love to look at things and try to forecast, you know, is it gonna be good or bad or which direction we move. But I had spent my first 27 years in my business living it, day and night. I was so blessed to meet my wife, Cece. And I was scared to death that I did not want her to ever think that uh, she wasn't the most important thing in my life. And I knew that if I stayed the course in the way I was running my business, it wasn't going to work. So that was the first time that I hired a president to operate the business. And so during those first, you know, 10 years, It was a struggle of letting go and letting management do it because I would always think I could do it a little better, you know, and certainly we had huddles and we had meetings and we fine-tuned it. I ended up coming back more actively in order to be sure that our business is relevant to what our customers' needs are. And uh, I love the business. I plan to be here till the day I die and will enjoy it. But I need to have my leadership do their stuff. It has worked really, really well. I'm so, so fortunate to have such great leadership within our organization.
1: And what do you see as the future of your business as far as who will own it? How do you see it being carried on? Oh,
2: my goodness. So a couple of months ago, it was really interesting. I uh, met with all of my leadership and I said, listen, listen. You know, I don't want you to ever worry that something is going to happen to Stellar, you know, just because I'm getting of age. The business will continue. I'm not interested in selling it. I want to keep it in the family. I'll have a good board of directors to kind of give oversight to my management folks. And I think Stellar, for many generations to come, will be very healthy.
0: A refreshing take on that. You know, I think a lot of people perhaps would just want to you know say they're done and and not have to burden their family with any expectations but yeah i think with uh covid receding and a vaccine coming do we do we think that we'll have retailers gather again at your space
2: i think that's one of the things that we all miss here the most it is so refreshing to get to see your customers face to face It's fun to be able to show off the most incredible jewelry manufacturing facility in all of America and to let them know that they helped build this thing. It's all about relationships in our business. And uh, we're looking forward to getting everybody back to Louisiana.
0: Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.